This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this says? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him. That he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. You do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's... If it's uh, a killing, uh, whatever, you just don't see it. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Behind Gray Walls, a podcast all about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who are incarcerated there. My name is Anthony, and I'm joined here with Sky. Hello, everyone. <laughs> and we've got some uh, some interesting stories going on this week. Personally, for mine, I just need to warn people that it, it does... Uh, have a, a sad ending so just i'm gonna get that out of hand no spoilers <laughs> yeah um mine does not so um, oh good do you want me to go first oh absolutely yeah okay. who are you talking about okay so i am going to talk about it may be a little bit long because she is our um inmate female inmate who is in the most frequently she was in oh. four times you know who it is you know her name uh, i know as soon as you say it i will uh, Barbara Ann Singleton. Singleton, yes, Singleton. that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the problem is is that most of the women when they come in have three names, and so you're like, I don't know, she had three names. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're probably right if you say that, yeah. <laughs> okay, so, um, yeah, we'll uh, kind of all talk about each of her incarcerations, obviously, as we go along. All of them are for issuing a check without funds, so she... Um, you know, was always writing bad checks and apparently never had any money. I don't know what the deal is there. So, sources, uh, of course, her inmate file, Ancestry.com, some Idaho Daily Statesman articles. There was a MagicValley.com article titled Hidden History, The Twin Falls by Michelle Matthews. And then the last one that I have is, uh, I used a little bit of Wikipedia, um, but of course I did not start there. So let's get into uh, Barbara. So she was born Barbara Ann Henderson on February 3rd, 1930 in Clifton, Idaho, which is in Franklin County, and that's right near the Utah border. She was the second of six kids born to Jesse Henderson, who was a World War I veteran, and Florence Baker. She had three sisters and two brothers. She was raised LDS, which if I remember correctly, I think Jesse, his father's name is Hiram, and that's a very LDS name. Uh, so it makes sense, and again, they're pretty close to that Utah border, so it would make sense that she was raised LDS, but she did not remain part of that church. At least she didn't claim it when she came into the prison. And the family resided in Franklin County for most of her childhood, as far as we know, because because frankly, we just don't know that much about her childhood. We don't have a social history for her, which is really interesting given the fact that she was in during the 60s, 1950s and 60s, when they took like really extensive social histories 
Um, I've talked about, you know, a few inmates who had those, but she just didn't have them. So I sort of could put together bits and pieces, but, but not really that much. Pretty much everything I've told you is, is what I know about her childhood. Um, so in 1953, she married a man named M.V. Singleton, but these are the only marriage details I could find. There isn't a marriage record or anything online, so we don't know when. So she could have, they could have gotten married before 1953. I just know that by 1953, she for sure is married to M.V. Singleton. The couple resided in Madison County. It's a few miles away from Idaho Falls, which is not too far from Franklin County. So basically, I think they're still pretty, still pretty close to where the family lived and grew up. So again, we don't know that much about Barbara and MV. Um, They were young. They were in their early 20s. And when you're in your early 20s, you like to have a good time. And for Barbara and MV, that meant that they liked to drink and party. But here's the issue. Uh, They don't make that much money. And so the everyday expenses started to become a real problem. So they needed to write checks just to get groceries, much less to, you know, feed their their party habit. And so Barbara had written at least 20 bad checks between 1951 and 1954. Whoa. She's stopped several times it doesn't seem that she's arrested or if she's arrested the local police sort of try to give her a pass try to be lenient say like listen you need to get your affairs in order but by at least 20 it's it's time to do something so um in 1954 in either early june or late may i couldn't find a date for it she was arrested and charged with writing insufficient funds check which is a felony in 1954 she was placed on probation originally and was supposed to make restitution on the checks, but she failed to do so. So in June 1954, while still on probation, she wrote another no-account check and was sent to the penitentiary she entered on June 25, 1954. So here is um, her intake form. The first time she is in is number 8918. In issuing a check without funds, she pled guilty, and her sentence was five years. She was white. She was five foot seven. So she's a average now, but was probably fairly tall back then. 261 pounds. She was 24 years old. Green eyes, brown hair, and a medium complexion. So there's a recommendation that comes with this intake form, and I think it's from the presiding judge. And he says, quote, a lot of Barbara's trouble is her husband. She seems to care a great deal for him, and we have suspected that he has instructed her to get him more booze, so she writes bad checks to raise the money. We have also wondered about the possibility of her having glandular trouble that has affected her rationale, possibility that some medical examinations and some psychiatric treatments would discover a cause. So, yeah. So, yeah, so she's got... This potential potential glandular trouble, I don't really know what that means then. I don't really even know what that means today. But some psychiatric treatment will also help cure her ailment, apparently. So basically, the problem with Barbara's file, it's, it's pretty scant. And for all of her incarcerations, we just don't really know that much about her time in prison. She behaved pretty well, again, as far as we know. But there was one time 
She wrote a letter to her husband and actually didn't send it through proper channels. He came to visit her in prison and she snuck the letter to him. Hmm. And the prison officials actually found out about it. Well, because what happens is MV was on probation at the time. And so he, you know, he felt really guilty and he knew he'd get in a lot of trouble if he was found with this letter. And so he took it to the warden so that his probation didn't get revoked. And um, oh so <laughs> so the warden wrote MV's probation officer and said, just so you know, um, we have a, a prisoner who wrote your probationer. I don't think he encouraged her to do it. She didn't send it through the proper channels. I don't think that his probation should be revoked, but you need to keep an eye on this, um, which I, I think is funny. But as far as I can tell, it, she didn't seem to get any extra time for it. It was probably just like a, you know, a, maybe a brief punishment, maybe like a lockup or whatever. But after that, not too, too much, too many issues with her. She was granted parole in May 1955. So she was granted parole in May. By December, she had violated her parole for an unknown reason, but I can probably guess that it was checks. <sighs> and so then she was returned to the penitentiary. So in May 1956, she was granted a hospital parole to St. Luke's for an undisclosed reason, um, perhaps for glandular trouble that they mention. It could potentially also be for childbirth, but it doesn't specify that it's for childbirth. And if it's for childbirth, they normally will say very specifically, granted probation to St. Luke's for childbirth. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't say that, which is why I'm thinking it could have been, a, you know, perhaps this glandular issue or another uh, issue that she needed to go to the hospital for. So she was granted parole and returned to the women's ward six days later. In November 1956, the Board of Corrections grants her a December parole, but it was revoked almost immediately for an unknown reason. That's the oh. most frustrating thing is, is we just don't, a lot of things happen, we don't know why, but we know that they happen. Mm -hmm. So, so they say here in December, if you are well behaved, uh, you get to be released, but I think within like two days, they revoked that. So finally, she gets on good behavior. She is granted a May discharge, subject to even more good behavior, but she finally follows that, and she's discharged from the penitentiary on May 13th, 1957, which means technically, even though she did have oh, about seven months outside of the penitentiary, she was incarcerated as number 8918 for two years, 10 months, and 18 days. Wow. So after she's discharged, she goes to Twin Falls, presumably to live with her husband. But again, we don't know why she is there. So let's talk a little bit about Twin Falls. We haven't talked about Twin Falls yet. We talked about Kimberly, but we haven't talked about Twin. Yeah. So it is in south central Idaho along uh, Interstate 84 and right along the Snake River. We know that prehistoric peoples occupied the area because in 1959, there are arrowheads found in Wilson Butte Cave near Twin Falls. And these are actually some of the oldest artifacts in North America dating to possibly 14,000 years ago. Wow. You know, these artifacts are tens of thousands of years old. And it's cool that the, some of the oldest artifacts in North America, not just in the country or the state. Of course, there are Native Americans all throughout the area, and eventually the Shoshone and Bannock tribes uh, tend to be the, the main tribes uh, within the area. And then, in 1869, gold is discovered along the Snake River, and a mining town called Shoshone City 
pops up about 25 miles east of current-day Twin Falls, but it's in a different place than modern-day Shoshone in Magic Valley. So Shoshone City and Shoshone are not the same. Um, they're uh, in different places. Shoshone City was probably more of a mining town, so that dies out. And so five years later, Twin Falls is platted, and it's named after two waterfalls two miles above Shoshone Falls. So Shoshone Falls, are you can currently go see them. Have, have you been to them, Anthony? I, I never have. No, I really need really? to. Really? Yeah. Yeah, they're really cool. Yeah. I. It's always but, like, oh, we got to stop there, but we never, we haven't made the time we, to do it yet. Yeah, you just never, you're just like, oh, we got to do that, but we got to get on our way first. Yeah. I, I got it. Um, so basically it's called, you know, Twin Falls because of these, these two, they're basically tributaries that sort of branch off from the Snake River and create these two waterfalls. There were actually three, um, originally, and then one got stopped up. And in this, um, article by, um, Ms. Matthews, that hidden history of the Twin Falls, she says, you know, Triple Falls doesn't have quite the ring to it as Twin Falls does. Mm. So... The area actually used to have a stage stop around uh, that proved successful for travelers, and so slowly population began to grow, and then dry land farmers come into the area, and as we learned the history I did about Kimberly from our Mildred Knox episode, a group of farmers formed the Twin Falls Land and Water Company, which helped irrigate land and facilitated more population growth. And so, you know, they can irrigate, they can grow crops, and so things are, are, it's a huge agricultural area out there in Twin. Yeah. Twin Falls is incorporated into the state in 1905, and Twin Falls becomes the agricultural center in the Magic Valley area, notably for beans and sugar beets. Huh. In 1935, the Idaho Power Company dammed up part of the Snake River for hydroelectric power, and so one of the Twin Falls actually is cut off. So now there's only one of the Twin Falls that still falls in the waterfall, which is kind of sad, but hydroelectric power is kind of neat. So, <laughs> um, and then Twin Falls' biggest claim to fame, it is in September 1974 when Evil Knievel attempted to jump the oh. Twin Falls Canyon. <laughs> yeah. I think everyone in the area knows the lore. I don't, I don't know many people who would have watched it on TV, but um, it was broadcast on Sunday afternoon TV, I think on ABC. This attempt was actually unsuccessful. Knievel did, you know, he took, it was some specialized motorcycle, and I apologize, I'm not a motorcycle person, but he was a special kind of motorcycle, and he had everything already, and he took off the ramp, but the, the winds out in Twin Falls can get super bad, and it was really, they were really bad that day. And so bad wind sort of, shifted him off the course, and his parachute deployed prematurely. And so he actually, I think his his bike hit the edge of the other side of the ramp, and he ended up falling down the canyon. Um, and if he had landed, he landed a certain amount of feet from the water, and if he landed in the water, um, his parachute would have gotten tangled up, and he thinks that he probably would have drowned. Yeah. Uh, so that ultimately was um, not a good jump for him. And but an interesting thing is that a stunt man named Eddie Braun actually reattempted the jump in 2016, and that one was successful. And Eddie actually worked with one of Evil Knievel's sons to like make it work. You know, I've just driven across that awesome bridge. You know, above. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, mm-hmm. I love that. And just looking down yeah, like hundreds and hundreds of feet. Oh, yeah. yeah. If you're um, afraid of heights, it's very scary. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Eel canoe. Wow. Bridge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so apparently, though, where this stunt happened, there's still the base of the um, of the ramp that they yeah. just sort of left there. And so you can actually go see the base of the ramp. I don't know where it is. I've never seen it. But that's so evil can evil if you're wondering, you know, I, I think, like I said, I think quite a few people, at least in Idaho, know about it. I don't know how many people outside of Idaho. Oh, my gosh. Can I tell you this story real quick? This is very pertinent. Yes. So um, <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, I think I mentioned it last episode I'm or two episodes ago. I am in Texas in a Ph.D. program and someone had asked, uh, what did you think Texas was going to be like? And, and in all honesty, I said. Listen, Texas to me was a theory. I knew it existed. I knew where it was, but it like didn't affect my daily life. And so, you know, I just didn't, it didn't seem real to me. And this girl got wildly offended. And I was like, sorry. And a friend was like, you can't say that about Texas to Texans. Like you have to be really careful. And I was like, okay. So then, so then this kid, this kid in my cohort, he, I was talking about Idaho for some reason. He goes, can I be honest with you? Um, I didn't know where Idaho was. So I had to look it up on a map. And I said, excuse me? (laughs) Listen, I thought it, I mean, I knew Texas was real and at least I knew where it was. And he was just like, oh, I'm so sorry. And I was just like, I can't, I can't believe this. (laughs) So there are people who like, I don't know if they know much about Idaho. Apparently Texans don't know that much. That's probably not true. I'm sure there are lots of Texans who do, but that particular Texan did not. (laughs) So anyway. Well, that's why we're doing this podcast. Now they can listen to this podcast and find out the beauty and amazingness of Idaho and also our, uh, I mean, we do just talk about our criminals. So, Yeah, so Tim, I hope you're listening. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Tim. (laughs) So um, in modern day, back to Twin Falls, uh, Twin Falls is still an agricultural area, but there are a lot of big companies that have branches there. Um, Dell Computers, uh, Jayco, which is actually a big motorcycle company. And the most recent one is the Chobani Greek yogurt factory that's out there. And so because all of these companies keep bringing branches, the population is getting bigger and bigger. So in 2010, the population was 44,125. And the 2018 estimate was 49,764. Wow. So it jumped almost 6,000 people in eight years, which is a, a pretty good growth. Yeah. So that's Twin. Let's get back to Barbara, who is hanging out in Twin Falls. Like I said, she might be living with her husband. She also might just be passing through. We do also know that she has one daughter, but again, we don't know the details of you know how old this daughter is, where the daughter is living. We just don't have those details. Um <laughs> So on August 23rd, 1958, so this is about a year and two months after she was released from her first incarceration, she writes a $20 check at Monty's Oil Company in Hollister, Idaho, which is just outside of Twin Falls. And again, it turns out that she had written about $235 worth of bad checks to grocery stores, service stations, drugstores, and a department store. And so again, she is arrested for issuing a check without funds and sentenced to five years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. She entered the pen on October 8, 1958. The prosecuting attorney said, quote, she evidently enjoyed writing checks all over Twin Falls, and I believe if she were released, she would do the same thing all over again. 
The second stay must have been incredibly uneventful, and so despite the prosecuting attorney's plea and warning, she is released six months later on uh, April 25th, 1959. Her movements after 1959 are not clear. According to a document in, the, in her inmate file, she had been married and divorced twice, but when she comes into the prison, they still use her last name, Singleton. So I'm not sure if that means she was married and divorced and remarried and be Singleton again, or if she had married someone else and divorced them and they just used the last name Singleton because that's what she was in the first time under. It's, again, just the lack of details is, is quite frustrating. We do know that she is married in 1962 and she comes in under the name Singleton, but the files make mention of a, quote, first husband, which I think would allude to the fact that she's married to someone else who's not MV, but we don't know who. We know that her husband, this new husband, is working with sheep in Castleford, Idaho, which is in Twin Falls County, which might lend the credence to the idea that she's probably living there, not just passing through. But we don't know her husband's name. And again, her, her one daughter would have probably been around 10 years old, kind of give or take. And she said that he, that the daughter was living with MV's sister, probably in Twin Falls. After her release from the penitentiary for the second time, she ends up just staying and working in Boise. At the time of her third arrest, which that's not a spoiler, she was either currently working at or had previously worked at the Belknap Nursing Home in Boise. And despite probably having a job, or this could be evidence that she didn't have a job, she still could not resist the urge to write bad checks. Oh. She also apparently had a drinking problem, which could have had something to do with her continuing trouble, but she claimed that she had control over her drinking. The authorities didn't seem to believe that. So there could be a lot of different factors kind of in, in what's going on here. So three days after Christmas, December 28, 1962, Barbara is arrested in a Safeway grocery store in Boise for writing a $20 worthless check, um, which I think is how much her other ones were worth as well. Just as before, she had been issuing worthless checks worth about $200 throughout Boise between December 20th and December 28th. Um, the sentencing judge said, quote, Her past record as a parolee and probationer caused me to sentence her to the penitentiary. She has never been fully a successful probationer. And, I mean, we technically know that she has been, um, because, you know, when she's rearrested, she's not violating parole. Uh, but what he's saying, I think, is she just can't stay out of trouble. Her, she's not being reformed. Yeah. Um, which I'm sure is frustrating to them, and it's probably frustrating to her, too, to have to keep doing it. She doesn't seem, I mean, we'll have to post all four of her mugshots, she doesn't seem like overly smug in them. Like sometimes you get those those mugshots where they're just like, I did it and I don't care. Yeah. She doesn't seem that way. But, you know, who really knows kind of what's going on um, underneath this facade? Was she Christmas shopping, you think? Or like, did she have family since it I, was? I, I would bet since it is around Christmas time, I actually had a similar thought uh, is that it probably was christmas shopping you know even if she doesn't live by her daughter she's still going to want to buy her daughter gifts she has a husband that uh, she's going to want to buy gifts for or she's like abusing the trust of you know that happiness of the mm -hmm. season it could be that as well oh man yeah i mean it's it's so hard to tell and yeah 
you know, I feel like, especially as you, as, as you and I get to know and our listeners get to know these, these inmates, you want to give them the benefit of the doubt and you want to say like, I think, you know, deep down you're a good person and you don't want to be doing this, but we could be wrong. You know, we don't, um, most of the time you actually have a lot more opportunity than, than I would to sit down with some of these inmates and say like, you know, what was going on? What led to this? Right. Um, but with these women, we just don't really have that opportunity much because what we have two oral histories of women. Is that right? One is Flossie and one is, uh, is it Lulu? We have, yeah, Rowan? Matron, Lulu, Rowan, Flossie Phillips. We have the daughter of, of one of the wardens who knew Lida Souther from like the 1920s. Mm. Is she the one who talks about the cats? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. She's from the Lida episode, yeah. And then we have Emily Ely, em- oh, Emily McClaws, I think. Yeah. McClaws, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, that's... So two but, inmates so and Two inmates, and a matron, and, and a daughter. Yeah. So, we, yeah, so we do, where yeah. I have so many men, mm-hmm. I have, like, probably, what, about 50 male inmates who were interviewed, and some, some in groups and some multiple times. So I have about 50 oral histories to work with, and then, like... You know, thirty plus guards and warden, chaplains, uh, librarians. I I do have a lot more mm-hmm. uh, resource in that way of the oral history and hearing these people talk about their crimes and their time and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I'm really excited to get to Flossie because her oral history is super neat. Yeah. Um. So you know, Barbara is arrested for the third time. She enters the Idaho State Penitentiary. On January 23rd, 1963, to serve a three-year sentence. Now, here's something that's sort of interesting, and you'll see this in her mugshot, and I, I forgot to bring it up. So, her second incarceration, she was number 10065. When she came in, she was about 40 pounds heavier than her first incarceration. She was 304 pounds when she came in the second time. And then when she comes in, not quite four years later, about three years later, as number 11196, she is down to 238 pounds. Wow. Um, yeah, which is awesome. So she's down, she dropped like 60 pounds, which is not, I guess that's, I'm not trying to define her by her weight, but I think that that's a really interesting shift that we see in. And clearly there's something going on that perhaps is positive um, in that she is losing weight. And again, it's not to say that your life should be revolving around gaining or losing weight. You need to hope if you feel happy at whatever weight, muscle class, whatever it is, then great. But that's just something physically that, that we can see in mugshots, something that we know is different between incarceration. So I thought that was just an, an interesting detail. Yeah. So again, we know very little about her third stay. Uh, it's very frustrating to you. It's very frustrating to me. She was placed on the Board of Pardons in July 1964 after promising that she would retain a job at the Belknap Nursing Home and that she would control her drinking. Uh, it was also learned that her husband would be back from his job working with sheep in October. So kind of insinuating that he's just there to, to do work and then he'll come back to Boise and, and they'll kind of have more stability there. Yeah. So um, after she kind of promised to have these things, she was released on September 23rd. 1964 she served one year and eight months with that particular thing and we are not done yet oh my gosh yeah so (laughs) likely soon after her release she is married or common law married to a man named robert Ayers, which means she 
Lashley. So whether or not this he is her husband or her common law husband during the third incarceration, we can't really be sure. But we do know that when she comes in for this fourth time, they state that she is also known as Mrs. Robert Ayers. I think the common law marriage is really, you know, I've talked about it before. It's a really, it's not a straightforward thing. It's kind of messy. The boundaries of it are kind of messy. Mm -hmm. So she could have said that, you know, we're married and the, you know, the, the police kind of have to take her word for it. So whether or not they actually were, whether it was the same guy, we just don't know. But when she comes in for issuing a check without funds for the fourth time, on August 30th, 1965, less than a year after her release from her third stay, we know that she's Mrs. Robert Ayers. And when she comes in, the paper states that she was also pregnant. Wow. Um, yes. So she has been married to him long enough to get pregnant. She is probably, mm, let's say, four months pregnant by the time, four or five months pregnant by the time she comes in. So she's been with him long enough for the pregnancy to have you know, happened, and, and so we know it's been about probably five months at least that they've been married, or common-law married, or, you know, whichever they were. And authorities are clearly exasperated that she does not seem to be learning anything from her experience in prison. The presiding judge, Theron W. Ward, said, quote, Sorry to send you this pregnant one, but nature will have its way. This woman seems to be a hopeless case. All she seems to understand is doing time. Huh. It's just, yeah, harsh. I, I hate that, like, sorry to send you this pregnant one. Like, it just, it really dehumanizes them. And, it, you know, especially these women, it's, it's not fair, it's not right. But she is pregnant when she comes in as number 11848. So four months after entering the Idaho State Penitentiary for the fourth time, she is paroled to St. Alphonsus Hospital to give birth on December 12th. And she is returned to the women's ward four days later. The baby is presumably given to her husband to take care of while she was incarcerated. There wasn't any sort of documentation that it was sent. The baby was sent to the children's home. And, and I would imagine if she is claiming Robert Ayers as her husband, they could have gotten in touch with him and given the baby to him. Yeah. So she applies for parole in February 1966. So only about two months after she gives birth. And... The parole board denies her case. I wonder why. Um, <laughs> and so her daughter probably would have been, I'd say, like, late adolescence, or, like, early adolescence, probably. So she's yeah. probably between 10 and 14-ish. Okay. By the time the second baby is born. Um, so her parole is denied in February 1966. And a year later, though, parole is granted after she had secured an approved job. And it doesn't say what this approved job is, but she says, I have this job. I promise I'll work at it. And so she is released on April 28, 1967. So this fourth and last incarceration, she is in prison for one year, seven months, and 29 days. Yay. So, so she is released in April. She lives in Boise until September. And she goes to the parole board and says, listen, my husband is living in Nevada, and he's there with, I think, presumably with, with her child. And she says, I would like to go stay with him, but I don't want to come back to prison. I don't want to break my parole. So can I have permission to go to Nevada and finish out my parole there with my husband? And she is given that permission. 
And wow. so she goes down to Nevada with at least one of her children. I don't know if her, her first daughter was living with her father or with um, Barbara and Robert. Um, but, you know, at least this baby that she had with Robert is going to be with them. And she successfully lives out her parole in Nevada. And the family moves back in late April or early May 1968. And she is discharged from parole for the final time on May 31st, 1968. And in my notes, I wrote in all caps, finally, with yeah. the exclamation points. Oh, that's <laughs> so exciting. Good for her. Yes. Yeah. I, we're all excited now. You know, we've been frustrated. We feel bad for her. Why won't she learn? But she right. did. She's, and she's on the right track. So she's like 38 ish years old like late 30s at this yeah point. so she's 35 when she go goes in and 65 so she would have been about 37 um and or 38 when she her gets her final discharge wow so um a few more details in case we're not tired of hearing about barbara yet so <laughs> there are kind of fuzzy details about what happens to barbara after her final discharge fairly certain that she's not arrested anymore. Um, at least she's not arrested in Idaho. And so Idaho doesn't get any records of her being arrested again, which is good. That's good. By 1967, if Barbara and Robert were common law married, they were formally married by 1967. Again, there are no official marriage records of that. So we just know by 67, they're officially married. Um, but then according to her social security records from ancestry.com, she married two more times. So by 1971, she is known as Barbara Zaravia. And by 1974, she is known as Barbara Welty. Again, very frustrating because there are no records of these marriages. But then in 1983, her given name is Barbara Ayers. And so she remarried Robert. And they actually, they moved to Oregon and they lived in Oregon for the rest of their lives. Um, And I actually, I found her death certificate. She died on October 28th, 2003 in Umatilla, Oregon. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. So that is, that is Barbara Ann Singleton, who was in four different times, which is impressive and not in a good way. I think it's, it's never too late to learn. Yeah. Yeah. And I definitely think she, you know, she... I, I would imagine by your fourth incarceration, you have, you, your first incarceration is 1954. You come in, you know, over a decade later. And by then, the, you know, you see the matron and you would just be like, I'm back. Yeah. What's up? Like, you would just be so tired of it. And, you know, Robert seems like he's a pretty good guy. He gets her on the right track. And, you know, after these other marriages, she goes back to him and they end up, staying together for the rest of their lives. And I don't think, if I remember right, I couldn't, I found her death certificate and it said that he was the spouse, but I don't know if he had died before her or not. Oh, okay. Because they'll, even if, I think even after the spouse has died, they'll still say that was the spouse of that's who they were married to. Yeah, yeah. When one of them died. So, you know, that is is quite a redemption story and I think that's really lovely. So thanks for um, sticking with me through that. It's a... A long one. It's not in a very exciting crime that she just no. repeatedly committed, and it's it's all too common in our prison records. Like there are, if I did every male inmate the old pen, 
I think people would stop listening because <laughs> probably 70% would just be like, and then he wrote a bad check here. And then he wrote a bad check here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and mm-hmm. right. hers yeah. being such a repeat offender of the same crime over and over again is like, it's unfortunate. And right. And that's what's so hard to tell with her. Is she doing it because she just likes it or is she doing it because she has no other option? Yeah. Um, and that yeah. is often the question with these, you know, no account checks or these. Sometimes uh, the women are just in for it just to be like, oh, I'm getting extra money. And I think at least her first arrest seems to be somewhere in the middle of like yeah. she's doing it so she can get booze, but they also don't have any money for groceries because they're spending it all on alcohol. Right. Um, you know, and so these later ones, again, I think that one that you mentioned that happened in late December, that could have very well been a, a Christmas thing. Um, and I think because she has continually done it and that, you know, this is her, the third time they've caught her doing it. I think the authorities really have no reason to put her on parole or probation. If she, it seems at this point, she's not going to stop. So I, I wish that I knew more about her and I apologize that it was just like, she got arrested for writing a bad check and that's all we know. And then she's let go and then she's arrested again. Um, but I, I do think. You know, just like with all these women, I think they have a story that deserves to be told, whether it's the exciting one of, you know, Margaret Hardy and Josie Kensler, or whether it's, it's you know, Barbara and Singleton just writing lots of bad checks. Well, very good, Sky. Hi, guys. I wanted to uh, make a major correction uh, from last week. Last week, and I don't know why I said this, but last week I said that normal schools were called that to differentiate them from insane asylums and schools for the deaf and things like that, and um, that is absolutely not what they are, and I knew that. Normal schools were schools for teaching future teachers. Every, At least every state had one. We had two that I know of, but probably more. We had obviously the one in Lewiston that became uh, Lewis and Clark State College, and we also had one in Albion, which is well known in Southern Idaho for its ghost hunting. So I apologize, I feel like I've let everyone down. I really don't know why I said that. I think that I was in my like third week of school and trying to keep my head above water and um, I did not do the research that this podcast was due. So I apologize for that. I will do my best to make sure that I know what I'm saying when I say it. And so I just apologize to everyone and please know I, uh, I promise I have degrees in research, I just don't know why I said that. So the other correction that I've wanted to make since um, the very first episode, I just ended up not making it, but I really want to get it correct now because this is just a 10-year-old me would be very disappointed. Um, So I had said in the very first episode, it actually may have been episode zero, that one about the history of Idaho, that there was an American girl doll who was from a Native American Idaho tribe and her name was Josephine. I got that incorrect. The the Native American that I American Girl doll that was on my binder that I talk about in episode zero, her name was Kaya. Josephine was the American Girl doll who lived in uh, the New Mexico region. And so I've been also dying to get that correction in as well. So I figured I'd sneak that one in there while I'm kind of taking care of this more serious correction. So again, I apologize if you listened and you were like, well, that was a dumb thing to say. I agree, it was. Normal schools are not differentiated from insane asylums in that way. They are for teaching teachers. So thanks for your patience. I promise 
to try to do better in the future. And I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Let's hear from you now. I decided to talk about this fella named Herman Schwartz, who came under under the uh, alias George Meyer, and he's number 3170. And sources that I used are the Idaho Daily Statesman, Chronicling America, The Weezer Signal, which was a newspaper, fiddlecontest.org. Sorry, did you say fiddlecontest.org? I say the word fiddling a lot in this episode, and it <laughs> yes. literally is about playing old-time fiddle. So, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. There's just a, <laughs> and Ancestry.com. My inmate here, George Meyer, real name Herman Schwartz, he was born in Chicago, Illinois on December 10th, 1904. Uh, December 10th happens to be my birthday, so I will always remember his birthday. Birthday um, twins! Birthday twins! We're just, <laughs> what, 85 years apart. Yeah. Practically the same person. Yeah. Unfortunately, he lied about a lot of things on his intake. So this might not be true. And uh, yeah, we'll get to that. So I came across several different files like on Ancestry.com with Herman Schwartz and with parents with a dad named Isidore Schwartz. The years were similar, but they weren't the exact December tenth, nineteen oh four. They were all like within a month or so. So, I don't, I don't know his true birthday. Anyway, he's born in Chicago, Illinois, to two Russian immigrant parents. They are practicing Jews, and they are Isidore and Lillian Schwartz, oh. and uh, they both immigrated from Romania. And I could not find. What year or anything like that? So I apologize. I don't. No, okay. I couldn't figure out if there's anything going on in Romania or if it was just mm-hmm. an opportunity to to move mm-hmm. to the United States and you know take part of the American dream. And, and but I'm actually learning about immigration in my classes right now. So um, uh-huh. is it like around the early 1900s or is it before then? I think. It's it's sometime probably in the 1890s that his parents okay. come. And so, that's just because I found several ancestry files that could potentially have been his parents. So this era of immigration is, um, things are going to, right? I would imagine late, around the 1890s for Eastern European immigrants, they're going to be mostly okay. Uh, 1892, you get the Chinese Exclusion Act, which completely shuts off. Any Chinese immigration save um, basically higher class uh, Chinese. And then yeah. around the early 1900s, you start to see um, the un- quote unquote unwanted immigrants, which is meaning mm-hmm. um, Southeast Asian and Southeastern Europe as well. Um, they don't really want many of those to come in to the country. So it seems like that's just sort of to give you some background. And you probably already knew that, Anthony, but. Um, that's, you know, these are, they're coming in at a very tense time in immigration and, uh, Mm -hmm. really defining what being a quote unquote American is. So anyway, that's just me being like, look, I'm learning things in school. That's great. I love (laughs) it. Keep doing that. (laughs) I'm learning through you. It's like, I'll have an honorary PhD just by talking to you, Sky. (laughs) Yeah. I I will bestow it on you when I get my PhD. Oh, that would be so cool. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it'll be like in the wizard of oz when they give all their fake when the scarecrow gets his fake diploma it'll be like that yeah 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 i like that <laughs> anyway so herman uh he grew up in the, a romanian jewish family and he trained to be a baker as a teenager somewhere around 18 
he skips town and decides to follow what they call the hobo life, basically hopping trains and living in tent camps on edges of cities. And it's his partner, his future partner in crime here, named Joe Harris, who the prison also said his name was Jack Slavic, uh, who also appears to be from Romania. They both skip town around 18, and they're both from Illinois. So I'm not sure if they met Hoppin' Trains or if they were childhood friends mm. or anything. But uh, they both left about the age of 18, if their birthdays that they list are correct. And they make their way to uh, the West Coast. They come to the Idaho-Oregon border. And one day they run into this elderly Weezer man named Leroy McCoy, which is one of my favorite names. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, <laughs> Leroy is is shepherding in Pendleton, Oregon, and he's he said he was heading to Vail for a hay season. Herman and Joe, you know, they run into him in Pendleton and attempt to sell him a sweater for 50 cents so that they could buy some food. But Leroy refuses, and because he's like this sweet old man, he's like, no, you know what? I'm going to take you guys in. I'm going to feed you. Where do you want to eat? I've got some money. Let's Let's go somewhere. I'll even, you know, take you a place to to sleep tonight like a boarding house so they they were like sure okay uh let you know what let's let's go to Vail and and work in the hayfields with you and so they actually board a train and they're gonna go to huntington and when they get to huntington oregon they decide to take this passenger train to weezer idaho just across the border across the snake river weezer is in Washington County. It's the uh, original home of the sheep eater Shoshone before any white settlement. And in the 1860s, these Shoshone, this little band, they were forced out by settlers. Uh, though, instead of going to the reservation, they would follow their their leader, Eagle Eye, back into the area and kind of work and live around the periphery. And while other tribes were fighting uh, Idaho soldiers and, and these forts, the uh, tribe under Eagle Eye actually just kind of resisted and moved back into this little area. And if, if you're interested in like learning about this little group, one of our former volunteers who actually passed away last year, Hank Corliss, mm. he wrote a book about the Weezer Indians, and and he talks extensively about Eagle Eye and. Uh, at one point, United States forces thought that Eagle Eye had been killed, which he hadn't. Uh, he actually used that to his advantage because then they stopped looking for him and his people. And so they got to actually continue in their kind of solitude, kind of hiding out and, and living in the hills outside of the white settlements there. But Weezer, how does it get its name? Originally, it's thought to be from the the founder, his name was Jacob Weezer, who settled in the areas in the 1860s. He, you know, came across some mining claims. But most likely, it actually comes all the way back to the early 1800s uh, when Lewis and Clark led their expedition across the country. And they had a soldier named Peter Weezer. And he was one of the best marksmen in his company. And I actually, I was just in Oregon like last week for a wedding. And I went to this little bookstore, and they had this the Lewis and Clark journals for sale there. So I was like, oh, I have to get this. Well, I'm in Oregon. I got to do this. So mm-hmm. I bought it, and just like flipping through it, and I noticed there was this little section about these soldiers being, you know, they hadn't even left. They were still in Missouri, and these soldiers got court-martialed. And I, while I was researching this episode, I remember going like, oh, my gosh, I need to find out who this is. And then while I was researching this episode, I came across Peter Weezer, and he was one of the fellows who was court-martialed because he told 
Lewis and Clark and the rest of the troops that he's going to go hunting with these other men. But in fact, they actually went to a whiskey shop and were busted, found guilty and had to stay in uh, camp for 10 days. They couldn't leave the grounds. But uh, Peter Weezer, he was a super valuable part of the Lewis and Clark expedition. And in William Clark's 1810 manuscript map that they included in the 1814 edition of the journals, he actually writes that this little tributary of the Snake River is the Weezer River. So um, that's Hmm. where it probably comes from. The town really kind of developed in the 1890s and early 1900s, and there are actually over 20 buildings on the National Register in Weezer. It's it's, It's a pretty big chunk of our uh, register of historic places here. The thing that I know the most about Weezer is their National Old-Time Viddlers Contest. Yeah. And this, uh, yeah, the town has had fiddling competitions since the early 1900s, but the current contest officially began when the head of the city's Chamber of Commerce, Blaine Stubblefield, he began the competition in 1953. And it is... At the beginning of summer, during the third full week in June, except for leap years, which I think is next year a leap year? Well, anyway, it's it's on leap years. It's held the fourth full week of June. And over 7,000 people flock to Weezer to watch over 300 fiddlers compete in eight divisions. Oh, my gosh. That would be so fun. Yeah, yeah. So the town itself, it's like I think the population is just above 5,000 right now. So. For a week, it you know more than doubles in in size there. That's great. And uh, yeah, the competitors have to perform three different tunes: a hoedown, a waltz, and then a tune of their choice in in whatever style. And then their scores are whittled down until only five fiddlers are left in each division. And and the judges, while they perform these songs, they look at the tone quality, the uh, style, the old time style, the rhythm and timing, and then the most important thing to me, the danceability. So if you can groove to it, chances are good, yeah. Outside of, you know, the competition that's going on in their high school, Weezer High School gym, they have jam sessions, workshops, uh, battle of the bands, and and parades during the week. And the, the school, the sports fields, like the soccer and football field, are turned into campgrounds for the competitors, so... I mean, this is something I've I've been wanting to go to this for years, and I think I'm gonna have to go to this next year to to witness all of this because this sounds so much fun. Bring my mm-hmm. banjo and just hang out and jam with a bunch of fiddlers and learn some learn a bunch of stuff. I ah, uh, yeah. The more okay. I was researching this, the more I was like, oh, I've been invited to this so many times. This and the harmonica festival, and I'm never gone. And I'm yeah, I definitely oh, have to go in the future. So. Cool. Hopefully, yeah. Some listeners, let's meet up there sometime next year, <laughs> the third third week or fourth week if it's a leap year of yeah, June. Yeah, <laughs> let's have a behind gray walls meet up at the Fiddler Festival. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Herman Schwartz, Joe Harris, Leroy McCoy, they arrive via passenger train from Huntington, Oregon, in Weezer, Idaho. And that evening, they stop in for dinner. They have a nice scrummy dinner, and Leroy starts looking for a boarding house for the night. But Herman and Joe said they wanted to stay at the hobo camp in, in the Willows, like right there along the Snake River. They said that they had some friends that were staying there, and they wanted to go meet up with them. So Leroy's like, hey, I'll follow you over there. So he follows these two young men. And Leroy, I should say, he, he is like, they describe him as elderly. I think he's like in his 
fifties and sixties. The newspaper never specifically says his his age. They say probably late fifties. And these two are like eighteen years old. So So fifty is elderly to them. Right, yeah. So he follows them to the river where their supposed camp was, and at this point one of the two men, Joe or Herman, strike Leroy in the back of the head and knock him what they think is unconscious. And Uh-oh. it's they don't know exactly what was used. It could have been a stick or a piece of railroad tie. But uh, either way, Leroy falls to the ground, and Herman and Joe proceed to tear his shirt and overalls into pieces. And using barbed wire, they hogtie him in, in the grass next to the river. And he had $60 on a patch on his knee and $5 in his pocket. So they steal $65 from him. They steal his watch and a knife before they hop on a a midnight train to Caldwell. You might say it's fortunate, but Leroy was actually conscious during the whole attack, and he listened to these two plot out their next moves. So when they left for that eastbound train, Leroy actually wriggles his his feet loose, and he runs towards the road, and he sees a a car passing by, and he flags them down, and they actually cut the Mm -hmm. clothing off of his hands, and uh, they take him to the police, and within an hour of their escape, police capture Joe and Herman in Caldwell, and they arrest them. Their only defense was that they said that Leroy was practicing an indecent crime against nature on one of them, and that they stuck him and tied him up to stop him, and were going to go to the police, but they (laughs) had left him. And they did not go to the police. And so the police were like, no, there's nothing to it. They actually yeah. went out and, and asked people in, in these towns that Leroy had worked in. And, you know, he was really well respected. So Herman and Joe, they are not described as well respected. The uh, prosecuting attorney said that they were bad characters, wholly void of feeling or responsibility to society. And in regard to their criminal tendencies, the prosecuting attorney also wrote that these fellows are hard-boiled, regular, regular Bowery toughs. Oh. And uh, I remember I was talking to Amber. She's like, Bowery toughs? What is that? And so I you know, I was like, yeah, what is that? That's is an interesting thing to use in, in the 1920s. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So there was a, there were the, in the gangs of New York in the mid-1800s, there's a gang called the Bowery Boys in Manhattan. And they were, you know, they were just young men who had, pretty legitimate jobs like butchers and construction workers, mechanics. But uh, in the evenings, they fought in those turf wars. Herman was a trained baker, and he's out here doing bad stuff, you know? So they are both convicted of robbery and given five to ten years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. On Herman's intake, says he's received August 3rd, 1922. Name George Myers, but his true name is Herman Schwartz. Crime, robbery age 18, born in Chicago on December 10th, 1904, legitimate occupation, baker, height, five feet, four and a half inches tall, complexion, regular, weight, 138 and a half pounds, hair color, dark brown, eye color, blue, parents are still living, and he left home at the age of 18. He attended Sunday school and is still a member of the Jewish religion, He attended seven years of common school and can read and write. Habits of life, he said, smokes, but no drugs. Uh, He had no former imprisonment. His closest relative was his father, Isidore Schwartz, in Chicago, Illinois. Peculiarity in build, short and stocky, condition of teeth, good, 
seven and a half size boot, parents born in Romania, and he had lived in Idaho for one month. And he had a tattoo on his left forearm of a dagger through a heart and several scars on his on his arms and legs. So, so sorry, I guess I misunderstood. Was so was the prosecuting attorney saying he was literally part of the Bowery Boys, or he was just like that type? He was, he just said they are that type, regular Bowery toughs. They say okay, okay, because yeah. I was gonna be like, well, that would make sense if he's all scarred up and is like this tough dude, because those like. Those Bowery Boys, like, they're intense. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) While incarcerated, he was a regular menace in the prison. A year into his sentence in the summer of 1923, a lawyer from Chicago wrote to the warden on behalf of Herman's parents asking about the nature of Herman's crime, and he asked whether he will earn any time by good behavior, etc. Is there any chance, in your opinion, to get him pardoned? And the warden responded very harshly, stating that Herman and his companion robbed the man that fed them and took care of them. He is a damn worthless scamp without one redeeming feature. At the present, he is locked up for breaking rules of prison, will not work, and his parents are better off if they never hear from him. He will never earn a bit of good time, other than statutory, for he will not work and is useless. There is no chance of his being pardoned or paroled if he keeps up his present record. Oh, that that line, his parents are better off if they never hear from him. Oh, my gosh. That is so harsh. And his his parents wrote a handful of letters that that are in his file. And, you know, there's there probably more that, you know, went to his cell that ended up in the trash or something else. But uh, this is, you know, a year into his sentence and then. Four years into his sentence, early December 1926, he actually is taken to the prison hospital for an illness, and they didn't disclose what it was. But while in the hospital, he actually grabs a bottle of iodine and drinks it, attempting suicide. He's given emetics, which cause him to vomit up the iodine, and he's sent back to his cell to revive. And uh, the morning of December 12, 1926... Two days after his 22nd birthday, and four years into his sentence, Herman's found hanging in his prison cell. What? Yeah, he I hung himself. I did not see that coming. Right, oh. yeah. This is, there There were oh. 18 suicides at the prison, and he is, he's one of those that, he's just such a young guy, and mm-hmm. he's he's just kind of a small guy. He's a little kind of stocky. I can only imagine how he was treated by other inmates and then by prison staff because of his constant talking back, not going to work, not listening and and doing what he's told. So the warden wrote that he hung himself in the number seven cell in number one house. And in this time, one house is probably still the territorial prison, which is where that early death row uh, was that we talk about with Patrick Murphy. He had torn his prison blankets into strips, wound them tightly around his neck, and standing on his tiptoes, fastened the rope to his bunk. The uh, coroner suspected that he had done it probably around midnight, so the day after his birthday. And the saddest thing to me, oh, I'm sorry, this is such a downer. I wish I had started the episode. There's a letter in his file from his mom, which she postdated December 12th, 1926, the day he he's found dead. And she writes, Dear Sir, 
would thank you very kindly if you would let me know why we do not hear from George Myers. The last time we heard from him, which was about two months ago, he was sick and someone had written for him. Would appreciate it if you would give us word from him, as Mother is very worried when she does not hear. Thank you for the favor. Um, I'm crying right now. Oh, that's so sad. Oh, my goodness. Oh. So sad. So, I mean, but between the trouble he's constantly in and, you know, the conditions of the prison and, like I said, being a young man, he he probably had a really, really rough time, which probably led to this depressive state that ultimately led to this suicide. The uh, warden sent a telegram to the family, letting them know what had happened and asked, you know, what do, what do you want to do with the body? And the family actually responded at saying, you know, could the state ship his body to Chicago for burial? But the warden wrote that there's no provisions for it. It would cost about $230 to ship oh. the body. And, you know, we, we don't have that money. So the family actually sent money to have Herman buried in Morris Hill Cemetery in the Beth Israel, the Jewish cemetery, uh, Beth oh. Israel at Morris Hill. So, and I went through the ledger and findagrave.com looking for a stone or anything for him. And I found one document that lists all of the burials in Beth Israel, but I think he's one of the many unknowns that were that are out there. So that is Herman Schwartz, number 3170. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's a, it's a heavy story. He, he, mm-hmm. he was just a dumb kid mm-hmm. and he, he did something and and you know suicide unfortunately is still up an issue in prisons i uh, just recently we've had two suicides in our current institution here in idaho and you know it's it's hard because these individuals they did commit crimes and they need to be punished and they are being punished by being out there but unfortunately people aren't comfortable asking for help and so if any listeners out there right now are feeling down, if you're feeling blue, you need help, ask for it. Just mm-hmm. just do something and and you know, there are so many people who are here to help and they want to help and mm-hmm. shout out while you while you can and, and before you get too too low. And if you want to reach out to Sky and I, <laughs> do Absolutely. it. I, we've all gone through really sad episodes and I mean I'll be I'll be really honest. I was telling Anthony before we started, like I went as I transferred to Texas, I went through probably about a month severe depression. Like it's, and, and by the time this comes out, it won't be as pertinent, but when we're recording this mental health awareness day was I think last week. And, um, and we want everyone who is feeling hopeless and helpless to know that you're not alone. And I think they just opened the first nationwide suicide hotline. And so if you if you are feeling helpless and you you know you don't want to reach out to anyone you know because you feel like a burden or you know whatever reason, then please call this number. No one should have to to feel what you're feeling right now, and just know that that you are are loved and you are cared for. Uh, just just don't give up yet. Absolutely. And that, that number is 800-273-8255 or 800-273-TALK. Definitely give them a call if anyone's feeling down. There are so many resources for people. And with the holiday seasons coming up, that's that's when a lot of these feelings get exacerbated and, and when the worst kind of comes. So 
Yeah, just thinking about all of our listeners right now. And <laughs> uh, this is a really sad story, and I think it's a good example. He was, you know, right amidst a birthday. He's incarcerated for the fourth year. It's coming up on different holidays uh, in all different, you know, religions. And New Year's is coming up, and he's away from his family and friends, and he's essentially wasted his early 20s by being incarcerated. So, you know, your life is so much better than that if you're listening to this right now. And, yeah, there's plenty of people who want to help. I Next week, we're, <laughs> I'll definitely have a, a much happier story. Uh, Bring it back up. <laughs> yeah. Uh Let's tell a joke or something. Yikes. Right. Crying in my closet right now, trying to get, get acoustics. Oh, oh Sky, I'm really sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Yeah. I did have a question, though. Um, can you talk yeah. a little bit about sort of how, you know, the, the Jewish population kind of both at the time and overall in the prison? Because I don't imagine that we had a lot of jewish inmates but maybe i'm wrong yeah you know in our records we have it's a very small minority so there's a pretty interesting uh, history of the jewish faith here in Mm -hmm. boise beth israel the the synagogue Mm -hmm. uh, the cornerstone of it was laid on 11th and state street in boise on october 6th 1895 it's the oldest synagogue west of the mississippi in continuous use since its founding And this is about a year after the wall around the prison was completed. The temple was constructed out of Boise sandstone, so just like the prison here. And there's roughly about 100 practicing Jews in Boise at the time. And 25 of these men actually spearheaded the construction of the temple. One of the founders was future Boise mayor and the first practicing Jewish governor in the nation, Idaho Governor Moses Alexander. And uh, here's an article documenting the Mm -hmm. 1895 commemoration. The cornerstone of the Beth Israel Congregation Synagogue was laid yesterday without formal ceremonies. The officers of the congregation presided at the laying of the stone. In the crypt was placed, among other things, various coins and copies of the city newspapers, including a copy of the Statesman, containing an article describing the edifice as it will appear when completed. And then in 1916, a year into Moses Alexander's tenure as governor, which lasted from 1915 to 1919, Mm -hmm. this article detailed all of the religious organizations Mm -hmm. in the Treasure Valley, and they discussed the history of Beth Israel. It states, Congregation Beth Israel has, since its inception, been without any regular rabbi. The service is being read and conducted by one of its members. Notwithstanding this handicap, it has during all that time conducted the services of the Jewish faith every Friday night and on all Jewish holidays. The past year has been no exception in this respect. It makes no missionary expenditures as a congregation. Whatever is done in the way of helping suffering brethren in other countries is entirely a matter of individual and private subscription. Its one and only source of revenue is from monthly dues of its members. The congregation owns its own house of worship, 11th and State Street, Boise, and a burial ground adjoining Morris Hill Cemetery. There was one rabbi named Joseph Goldman who visited Boise in July of 1918, who went around the country and visited churches of every denomination to give a sermon he titled Life of a Russian Prisoner in Siberia. Mm -hmm. He was a rabbi who escaped Russia during the Bolshevik Revolution Mm -hmm. of 1917 and came to the United States. And on July 4th, 1918, he visited the prison and discussed his experience in prison in Siberia. 
and he contrasted the horrors of prison methods in Russia with those in the United States. And I guess he went into very graphic detail. But uh, the only thing I could find about his sermon, it seems like he actually wrote several books about his experience, but I haven't been able to dig through those yet. But I did find one article from 1921 in the Pueblo Chieftain in Colorado. And he said this, he said, I am an old man, the last of scores of generations of my family. My wife and six of my children were butchered before my eyes by the minions of the Tsar of Kishinev, Russia. Myself and my son, Reuben, stood in water to our armpits in the flooded basement of my home and were able to escape detection and so made our way to America. Two years after our arrival in Seattle, America entered the war. My boy, who had fought with the forces in the Tsar against Germany, joined the American forces. As a first lieutenant, he was killed, my last child, by a German bomb in the Battle of Bella Wood. Now I am alone, the last of my family, an old man. I have just two missions in life, working to rid America from the inroads of the IWW and Bolshevik and all Reds and Radicals who may seek cover here, and doing my part in realizing the age-long dream of the Jew, the restoration of Palestine to the race that has long been nationless. You ask me, why do I not go to the people of my own race in the cities I visit? That would be breaking bread and bread. It is the Christians, the non-Semitic races of America, that I wish to carry the message of warning against radicals. To the Jews also I would speak, but they will come hear me as well in a Christian church as in a synagogue. You can imagine, it was a pretty fascinating visit when this rabbi visited the penitentiary, and the Idaho statesman actually said that uh, it was a great day for convicts when he came that Independence Day. But uh, in all records I've gone through, I haven't come across any that refer to religious leaders from Beth Israel congregation visiting the prison, though it doesn't mean it never happened. The synagogue was added to the National Register of Historic Places in November of 1972, and on October 26, 2003, at about 1 a.m., it was moved very slowly via truck about three miles to its current location on Leita Street behind Morris Hill Cemetery. So it went from you know, 11th and State Street to Leita. Well, so. I mean, depressing but nice work. I actually, <laughs> I had never heard of him before, and so I get I get excited when I, you know, hear about inmates that, because I feel like every, almost everyone that, that you've done so far, I'm like, oh, I've heard that name. But his was like a totally new one, which there should be quite a few of those since we had 13,000 men. Yeah. And I've been I've been doing I've kind of been going out of the way to like learn somebody new for myself too because mm-hmm. there are so many stories that I've told so many times and mm-hmm. I've researched so extensively that it's like I don't know I love researching so uh, yeah. I'm gonna research this person and so that that he was one of those cases where I was like what what drove him to this you know what he's he's so young and full of life he's you know months away from being released from serving his minimum sentence and by prison accounts he was a a behavioral problem but often they're like you know what we're gonna send him out and send him to another state if he does get in trouble it won't be here in idaho anymore that sort of Mm -hmm. thing which is unfortunate too Mm -hmm. but uh I don't know. It's an interesting thing to to see, and and look at his mugshot. He's he is. He's so young looking, and his partner Joe Harris. What were they thinking when they left Chicago and their family and everything else that they had going for him? Like, what motivated them to like? I'm going to travel west and do all these different things and and find an exciting life. 
cool well let's wrap this up uh sky good work um everybody else do your own time do your own number we'll see you next week if you enjoyed behind gray walls please rate review and subscribe so others can find our podcast if you're interested in more old idaho penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode follow the old idaho penitentiary on instagram and facebook if you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.